You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 268 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last episode, we talked about how Stonewall Jackson was shot by his own troops in the dark and the woods late on the evening of Saturday, May 2nd, 1863 at the Battle of Chancellorsville. With his wounding in that friendly fire incident, Jackson's role at Chancellorsville came to an end, although Stonewall then had a new battle to fight, a battle for his life. Stonewall Jackson's wounding and subsequent death were a tragedy for the Confederacy. We're going to wait until the end of the Chancellorsville story arc to talk about Stonewall's death on May 10th, and we're going to wait to talk about his death Because, as we mentioned in the last show, the Battle of Chancellorsville didn't end with Jackson's flank attack. The majority of the fighting and the casualties remained ahead on May 3rd. Stonewall Jackson fell on the eve of a new phase of the battle. This new phase of the battle would be a fight of an entirely different nature and would be in the hands of an entirely different commander, as Stonewall's 2nd Corps would be led into battle on May 3rd by Jeb Stuart. On the other side of the lines, two things became evident during the night of May 2nd, and those were that Hooker was losing, but he had not yet lost. The Federals at Chancellorsville still had many advantages. They still had superior numbers in their favor, as well as strong defensible ground, and the benefit of interior lines for the rapid shifting of troops from one sector to another. They also held Hazel Grove, which offered one of the few significant clearings in the wilderness to deploy artillery. Hazel Grove was also the key piece of ground in the Federals' hands that ensured Lee to the east and Stuart to the west remained divided and weak. So the fighting at Chancellorsville was still far from over, but while Stonewall Jackson's flank attack didn't end the battle, it did create a new dynamic where the Confederates seized the initiative and had a chance to win. This was Jackson's greatest accomplishment. He took a situation that favored the enemy, and by aggressive maneuvering and surprise, he created an opportunity out of nothing. Stonewall Jackson had set the stage for Confederate victory at Chancellorsville. 
The question remained, though, what would Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart do with that opportunity? With Stonewall's wounding, his corps faced a crisis of command. That's because moments after Jackson's evacuation, his senior division commander, Major General A.P. Hill, sustained a painful injury. A shell fragment glanced across both of Hill's calves without breaking the skin, but bruising him so badly he could no longer mount a horse. He relinquished command of the Corps to Brigadier General Robert Rhodes. In the future, Robert Rhodes would prove himself to be eminently qualified for higher command. But at Chancellorsville, he was a mere brigadier with limited experience. In addition, A.P. Hill knew that Rhodes could expect little help from either his own, that is, Hill's, staff, which had been decimated in that friendly fire incident, or from Stonewall's staff, which was in turmoil after their chief's wounding and traumatic evacuation from the battlefield. And so Hill decided the wisest course of action would be to send for the only major general left on that part of the battlefield, even though that major general was a cavalry commander, Jeb Stuart. Jeb Stuart got Hill's message at around midnight while he was leading a hit-and-run mission against some Federal cavalry up at Ely's Ford on the Rapidan. Answering the summons to take command of the Second Corps, Stuart wasted little time in galloping off, heading for the front. When he arrived, Rhodes turned over command to him. A quick briefing on the situation convinced Stuart that he couldn't drive the flank attack any farther that night, so he ordered the rebel infantry to regroup and prepare to renew the action at daybreak. Meanwhile, tracing Jackson's flank march in reverse, two riders independently made their way to General Lee's headquarters. The first rider alerted Lee to Stonewall Jackson's wounding. Lee sadly noted that, quote, any victory is dearly bought, which deprives us of the services of General Jackson, even for a short time. The second messenger, mapmaker Jedediah Hotchkiss, arrived sometime later. When he tried to update Lee about Jackson, Lee interrupted him, saying, I know all about it and do not wish to hear any more. It is too painful a subject. Informed that Jeb Stuart had taken command of the Second Corps and sought orders, Lee immediately sent the weary Hotchkiss back with instructions for Stuart to attack at first light. Lee knew it was imperative that his own and Stuart's forces link up as soon as possible before Hooker capitalized on the divided Confederates' weaknesses. General Robert E. Lee faced a monumental crisis on the morning of Sunday, May 3, 1863. Stonewall Jackson's brilliant flank attack the previous evening had created an opportunity for Lee to win the battle decisively. But at the same time, Lee knew that he was weaker and more vulnerable than ever before. He had divided his small army into three parts. Two divisions, McClaws and Anderson's, of Lieutenant General James Longstreet's 1st Corps were under Lee's direct control, 
just to the east of Chancellorsville. Major General Jubal Early's command was holding the line back at Fredericksburg. Then Stonewall Jackson's 2nd Corps was just to the west of Chancellorsville after its flank march and its surprise attack the previous evening. And Lee's small army wasn't just divided, its command structure was also in turmoil. To state it plainly, Lee had no corps commanders. That's because 1st Corps Commander James Longstreet, with two of his divisions, had been sent off to Southside, Virginia. 2nd Corps Commander Stonewall Jackson was out of commission, and his senior division commander, A.P. Hill, had also been wounded and forced to relinquish command. Major General Jeb Stewart now led Jackson's force by virtue of his rank, but it remained to be seen what kind of infantry corps commander the dashing cavalryman would make. Robert E. Lee had only two advantages. One, his adversary had decided to fight the battle defensively and so surrendered the initiative. And two, Jackson's flank attack on May 2nd had the Federals off balance and reeling. Building upon those advantages, Lee decided upon a course of action for May 3rd by which he aimed to win the battle decisively right then and there. Lee's plan was simple. Both he and Jeb Stuart would attack at first light. Lee told Stuart, quote, It is necessary that the glorious victory thus far achieved be prosecuted with the utmost vigor and the enemy given no time to rally. Meanwhile, Fighting Joe Hooker had to reevaluate all of his plans. So far, every prediction, every announcement had been exactly wrong. He had assumed Lee would, quote, unquote, fly ingloriously from his Fredericksburg defenses as soon as Hooker's flanking column had got behind him and another Federal force crossed the Rappahannock below Fredericksburg. But instead of pulling back along the railroad toward Richmond, Lee had marched most of his small army to confront Hooker at Chancellorsville on May 1st. Then on May 2nd, after he'd announced that Lee was indeed retreating, Stonewall Jackson's flank attack had blindsided Hooker. Hooker spent the hours of darkness on the night of May 2nd, consolidating his lines after Stonewall Jackson's flank attack had finally run out of steam. As part of this rearranging of his lines, Hooker paid a pre-dawn visit to 3rd Corps Commander Daniel Sickles at Hazel Grove. As you guys will recall, Sickles' aggressiveness the day before had put him in an exposed position down at Catherine Furnace, but Jackson's flank attack shattering the 11th Corps and the onset of darkness had made Sickles realize how vulnerable he was. And so by 9 p.m. he had carefully withdrew his men northward again to the high ground at Hazel Grove. Not content to simply wait out the remaining hours of darkness and see what the morning would bring, Sickles wanted to launch a night attack from Hazel Grove, driving northward toward the Orange Turnpike and see if he could catch the Confederates in the dark. Instead of the rebels, though, what Sickles found, said one officer, was, quote, a fine description of pandemonium. As Sickles' men advanced northward from Hazel Grove, Many of them lost their bearings in the woods. Nervous Yankees started shooting at shadows, and the shadows shot back. Confederates started shooting, too. 
Federal artillery at the Chancellor House clearing soon joined in. Sickles' men attempted to escape the chaos, but then blundered into some of Slocum's 12th Corps troops. Although the 12th Corps soldiers had been warned to expect friendly troops moving across their front, they opened fire when Sickles' men fired on them first. After the war, the historian of the 13th New Jersey wrote that, quote, About midnight, Bernie's division of Sickles' Corps made a grand moonlight charge upon the enemy. It was this engagement that startled us as we lay in the edge of the woods, and in some manner still unexplained to me, we became inextricably mixed up with them. Regiments from a half-dozen states were broken up and became mixed with our brigade. For a time, there was dire confusion. Excited aides and orderlies were moving hither and thither with contradictory orders. The 13th Regiment was thrown into confusion, and it was nearly an hour before the line was restored. Sickles finally managed to pull his men back, and the pandemonium in the darkness ceased. The hapless Federals suffered nearly 200 casualties, nearly all of them from friendly fire. Union soldiers later scornfully dubbed this action Sickles' Midnight Charge. After it was over, the Third Corps hunkered down at Hazel Grove to wait for morning after all. Now Hooker was paying his pre-dawn visit to Dan Sickles at Hazel Grove. The spot, Hooker explained to Sickles, formed a salient in the Union line, an exposed position that jetted outward in a way that made it vulnerable to attack from multiple sides at once. With Confederate forces positioned on either side of the salient, Hooker believed that Sickles could expect the rebels to exert irresistible pressure upon the Third Corps position at Hazel Grove. Sickles disagreed. Hazel Grove was the best high ground in the area, and Dan Sickles was certain he could hold it against all comers. Hooker, though, remained unconvinced. If anything went wrong, the Third Corps would be cut off from the rest of the army. Hooker had already suffered one debacle with Howard's 11th Corps. Now, wanting to prevent another disaster, he ordered Sickles to withdraw to a newly established line at Fairview, closer to the Chancellor House. The new line would be more defensible, Hooker maintained, and would be closer to the Federal Reserves. And so Sickles began his, his withdrawal, although the wet ground at Lewis's run caused a delay. That meant the final elements of Sickles' infantry and artillery were still at Hazel Grove as daylight broke, and across the way, Jeb Stewart gave the go-ahead for his morning assault to get underway. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. At dawn we were roused. The skirmishers sent forward, and the line of battle moved close after them. The way was through a close, rough growth of pines, swamp trees, and vines. Soon the yell was raised, and the pace accelerated. Both mistakes, for the one discovered us to the enemy, when we might have remained concealed, and the other disordered our line, and in the end lost time. It was difficult at common time to keep the line dressed. However, we cleared the woods and came upon a formidable abatis of felled trees. Beyond this, at the distance of perhaps a hundred yards, were the enemy's breastworks of logs. We were surprised to see no fire open from it upon us. We passed it with a shout, ascended to the crown of the eminence, and saw the enemy. Simultaneously, a fire was opened by the two sides. We were on a pretty steep hill. Their main line was on the slope of the opposite hill. We could not see much, for the morning was foggy, and the smoke of both lines soon became so dense that I could not even distinguish the flags of the enemy. The firing waxed furious. The advance was abandoned by us. The cheering was hushed. All on both sides addressed themselves to loading and firing as rapidly as possible. Lieutenant J.F.J. Caldwell, 1st South Carolina Infantry, McGowan's Brigade. Looking down the line of our company as the yelling of the enemy came nearer and nearer to us, I judged that everyone felt about as I did. There was no levity now. The usual joking had ceased, and a great quiet prevailed. I could see pallor on every face as we brought the hammers back to a full cock. I believe every arm trembled as we raised our guns to our shoulders to fire, but all eyes were to the front, not one looked back. This was a testing time, and there was not one of our company that did not pass the test. Fortunately for us, the enemy began firing before they reached the top of the hill, so their first volley was over our heads. We were warned not to fire before order to do so, but as soon as the Johnnies opened on us, some of our men commenced. Most of us, however, held our fire until we saw the line of smoke that showed that they were on the ridge, then every gun fired. It was then load and fire at will as fast as we could. 
Soon the nervousness and fear we had when we began the fight passed away, and a feeling of fearlessness and rage took its place. We loaded and fired as fast as possible, but still they came on. The smoke was so dense we could seldom see them, but we could see the flash of their guns as they advanced yelling. The crash of the musketry was deafening. Climbing over and pushing aside the fallen timber in their front, they were soon not more than twenty feet from our barricade. Corporal Rice C. Bull, 123rd New York Infantry, Ross's Brigade. Like Hooker, Jeb Stewart had also been waiting for daylight. He had asked both Lee and Jackson for instructions. The wounded Stonewall, shaky and weak from blood loss and pain, tried to rally but could barely muster up the energy to tell Stewart's messenger that Stewart would have to do what he thought was best. Lee, however, as we've already mentioned, ordered Stewart to attack toward Chancellorsville at daybreak. Lee's orders read, quote, as soon as it is possible, they must be pressed so that we can reunite the two wings of the army. Endeavor, therefore, to dispossess them of Chancellorsville, which will permit the union of the whole army. Lee hoped a strong thrust by Stuart toward the center of Hooker's position would force his opponent to constrict his lines and possibly relinquish Hazel Grove. The clearing at Hazel Grove would be the easiest and most direct way for the forces under Stuart and Lee to link up. Lee intended to mirror Stuart's move with his own strike against Chancellorsville from the east. He would have McClaw's and Anderson's divisions attack directly toward Chancellorsville and then extend their left flank west to link up with Stuart's troops. During the remaining hours of darkness before the dawn, Stuart had struggled to arrange his new command for action. He had very little staff to help him. As mentioned before, Jackson's had left with their wounded chief, A.P. Hill's had been decimated, and Stewart's own staff had mostly stuck close to the cavalry. Nevertheless, by tireless exertion, Stewart managed to deploy Hill's division, now commanded by Heath, in the front line, while Rhodes and Colston arranged their respective divisions in reserve. At 5 a.m., even as the last of Sickles' Federals were preparing to withdraw from Hazel Grove, the lead elements of Stewart's attack appeared at the edge of the clearing. Brigadier General James Archer yelled, Fix bayonet! Charge em, boys! Confederate artillerist Porter Alexander set up a pair of batteries to support the rebel infantry's charge. Brigadier General Charles Graham's brigade covered the Federal withdrawal, along with support from the guns of Captain James Huntington's 1st Ohio Light Artillery. Huntington's guns blasted the oncoming rebels with canister. Then when the canister ran out, his men began firing what is known as rotten shot. They pulled the fuses from the case shot so that when the guns were discharged, the fire from the powder ignited the shells, which then hopefully exploded just as they left the muzzles of the guns, sprang outward toward the enemy like canister. This was very dangerous and only used in the last extreme, since if the shell burst before it left the muzzle of the gun, it could rupture the tube. 
Mounting Confederate pressure forced the Federals to turn their orderly withdrawal into a hasty retreat. Huntington lost three of his guns as he attempted to cross Scott's Run while pulling back to Fairview. Most importantly, the Federals' exit from Hazel Grove gave the rebels undisputed control of that vital plot of open ground. Like Jeb Stuart, Porter Alexander had found himself thrust into command the previous night, replacing the Second Corps' wounded chief artillerist, Stapleton Crutchfield. Alexander, who was actually part of Longstreet's Corps, knew nothing about the ground, the artillery positions, or the location of the Union batteries. He had spent the night giving himself a crash course on the tactical situation. And now Joe Hooker had just given Alexander the best spot for artillery on the battlefield. In the seventy-some square mile sea of tangled trees and brush that made up the wilderness, there were few open plots of ground, making the wilderness a terrible place to deploy artillery. Open ground like Hazel Grove was therefore invaluable. Hazel Grove was also an ideal artillery platform because of its elevation. Being on higher ground increases a gun's range, while also making the gun harder to hit with counter-battery fire. Compared to Fairview two-thirds of a mile to the northeast, Hazel Grove doesn't have a particular advantage in elevation. But compared to the ground around the Chancellorsville intersection, it does. That's what made this position so important for the Confederates. The rebels now enjoyed a wide-open alley of fire toward the important intersection where Hooker's headquarters was located. Fortunately for the Confederates, Porter Alexander knew his business and had his guns close at hand and ready to go, 28 cannon in all, including the three just captured from Sickles' retreating artillerymen. He also ordered another 14 guns up along the plank road in order to create converging fire on the new federal position. It was done very quickly, Alexander wrote, and he had to move fast because just over half a mile away, the Federals were lining up guns of their own. Even as James Archer's brigade swept onto the crest of the recently abandoned Hazel Grove, the rest of the Confederate Second Corps surged forward. Rebel brigades advanced southeasterly through the woods, while others drove straight down the plank road toward the Chancellorsville crossroads. James Lane's brigade, including the 18th North Carolina, was at the forefront of the fray. Remember Jackson, some of them shouted, while others let loose the rebel yell. Waiting to meet the onrushing Confederates were elements of the Federals' 3rd and 12th Corps, some of them tucked behind rough breastworks they had hastily constructed during the night. The rebels swept up to the Union line where, according to one Yankee soldier, there ensued, quote, a long, fierce, and desperate contest. There was, he said, quote, no stopping, no breathing space. Major General Hiram Berry, a native of Maine who commanded a division in Sickles' Third Corps, was shot as he crossed the plank road. I am dying, he told his staff when they came to his aid. He asked them to carry him to the rear, but by the time they reached the Chancellor House, Berry was dead. <laughs> <laughs> 
earning him the dubious distinction of being the highest-ranking federal officer to fall during the Battle of Chancellorsville. As the terrible back-and-forth combat continued, 12th Corps Artillery Chief Captain Claremont Best put his 44 guns into action at Fairview. He had only a slight advantage in numbers over the Confederate artillery, but was laboring under the weight of several disadvantages. The first was being on the receiving end of converging fire, that is, rebel guns at multiple locations concentrated their fire on his single position, as Porter Alexander's guns at Hazel Grove, coupled with S.D. Lee's up along the plank road, targeted the Yankee batteries. Complicating matters, Best had to fire over the heads of friendly Federal soldiers. Never an ideal option, since it was tremendously demoralizing to the infantry, not to mention devastating when one of the shells would accidentally burst prematurely, killing or wounding friendly troops. The noise was deafening as the shells went howling and singing over our heads, and we nervously ducked as they went by wrote Corporal Rice Bull of the 123rd New York. Bull's regiment was locked in a struggle with some of Lane's North Carolinians. Robert Cookshank, also of the 123rd New York, wrote of the oncoming Confederates, quote, They appeared in one solid mass of living gray. The whole woods seemed to be full of them. The rebels would surge forward only to be driven back, but the respite was temporary. Cookshank wrote, quote, It would only be for a moment, as the empty places in the enemy's ranks would be filled, and on they would come again. As Jeff Stewart fed fresh troops into the fight, Hooker ordered a counterattack. Union soldiers in Major General William Blinky French's 2nd Corps Division swept out of their breastworks, charging in a northwesterly direction, pushing back the Confederates. But the Federal attack bogged down just north of the Plank Road. One soldier complained, The country is the worst possible for aggressive warfare. It is heavily wooded and is very broken. We cannot see a hundred yards in front of us. Another soldier, however, saw that terrain as an advantage, saying, I presume the thick woods protected us, as nearly every tree had a ball in it. Meanwhile, the bitter struggle to the south of the Plank Road continued. Union and Confederate soldiers attacked and counterattacked, locked in savage combat. The colonel of the 18th North Carolina, Thomas Purdy, suffered a mortal wound. His second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Forney George, was knocked out of action, and the regiment's color-bearer, who was killed, lost the 18th's flag. Some Confederates saw the 18th North Carolina's loss of their colors as symbolic punishment for their wounding of Stonewall Jackson the night before. But Lane's brigade as a whole suffered heavily, losing 910 men killed, wounded, or missing, including the loss of 12 of its 13 field officers. In another attack, members of the Stonewall Brigade claimed they would show their fellow Confederates, quote, how to clear away a federal line, end quote. But the brigade's commander, Frank Paxton, a hometown friend of Stonewall Jackson's from Lexington, Virginia, was shot in the chest and mortally wounded as he led the advance. Without their commander, the Stonewall Brigade shortly thereafter fell back, having failed to clear away the Federals, as they had boasted they would do. 
The federal shelling from Fairview also took a toll on the attacking Confederates. The 10th Virginia, advancing north of the Plank Road, lost its colonel and a major to the enemy artillery fire coming from the south. One of the regiment's captains later wrote that, quote, I was shot in the foot, and in 15 minutes after, I was shot through the hip, which near disabled me. The fierce seesaw tide of battle swept past him, and he prepared to surrender, but then it swept back in the other direction, giving him the chance to make an escape. He was hit then a third time, but managed to, quote, escape from the field by the assistance of a friend. Brigadier General Samuel McGowan's South Carolina Brigade carried five regiments into the fray on the morning of May 3rd. McGowan was hit moments after entering the battle. His second-in-command was wounded a few minutes later, and then the third-in-line was mortally wounded. The next officer lost his nerve and had to be relieved. Command finally devolved to Colonel Abner Perrin of the 14th South Carolina. He was the fifth commander of the brigade that morning, and it had only been in action for 15 minutes. At around 9 a.m., Jeb Stewart threw in his last reserves. The division of Robert Rhodes, which was still exhausted from its efforts the previous evening during Jackson's flank attack. Nevertheless, the push by Rhodes' troops here was enough to finally dislodge the Federals from their breastworks south of the Plank Road. This breakthrough suddenly put the rebels in a position to threaten the Union artillery at Fairview. Pushing to the front was the steady North Carolina Brigade of Brigadier General Stephen Ramser. Ramser's brigade had seen relatively light action on May 2nd during Jackson's flank attack when it had been boxed out of the fight by the advance of another rebel brigade. Now, on the morning of May 3rd, Ramser's men advanced with grim determination. Lieutenant William Brewer of the 2nd North Carolina said, I shall never forget the scene when General Ramser took a position in the front of his brigade, drew his sword, waved it over his head, and cried out, Men, will you follow me? Every man arose at the sound of his voice. Then the command, Forward! Charge! It was the only charge on the enemy they ever made without the yell silent as specters. Every man in the brigade knew we were being sacrificed. A look of grim determination to their duty was on every face. It was a costly push. Ramser's brigade, which led the final assault by Stuart's troops, successfully led the breakthrough, but in doing so lost more than half its strength. The 4th North Carolina alone suffered a casualty rate of nearly 80%. The brigade as a whole lost 790 of the 1,510 men who entered the battle. It was said that Ramser, seeing the carnage that befell his men, quote, wept like a child. To the southeast, Robert E. Lee, acting in the role of a corps commander, ordered the divisions of McClaws and Anderson to begin attacking. The advance of Anderson's troops put pressure on the enemy position at Fairview from a new direction, making it even more difficult for the Federals to maintain their hold on that spot. A series of charges and countercharges turned the battlefield into a chaos of struggling soldiers and bursting shells. 
Every time the Confederate infantry would pull back, said one Union soldier, rebel guns at Hazel Grove, quote, poured the shells over into us in perfect showers. But the Union infantry weren't the only ones on the receiving end of this shelling. As more Confederate batteries rolled into position at Hazel Grove, some of them began to take aim at the Chancellor House, where Fighting Joe Hooker was standing on the porch, watching his plans unravel before his eyes. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is actually a back issue of a Civil War magazine. Yep, Blue and Gray Magazine, Volume 29, Issue Number 5. This issue looks at the fighting at Chancellorsville on May 3rd through 6th. As some of you may recall, we previously recommended Volume 29, Issue Number 4. And together, these two magazines, with articles by Frank O'Reilly and a set of excellent maps, are an invaluable resource for anyone wanting to look into just what happened at Chancellorsville. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this week's episode, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Mark A., Douglas, John, and Mark L., just yesterday, we released members episode number 81, in which we looked at what happened to James Lane and John Barry after the Battle of Chancellorsville and the wounding of Stonewall Jackson. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.